Chapter ninety two of The Wanderer or Female Difficulties. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wanderer or Female Difficulties by Fanny Burney. Chapter ninety two. Happy to second the benevolent scheme of the kind hearted Admiral, the Bishop hastened to his fellow voyagers with the hospitable invitation. Juliet, in whom every feeling was awake to meet, to embrace, and to share her delight with Lady Aurora, would have followed. But Lord Mulberry, to avoid, upon so interesting an occasion, any interruption from Mrs. Howell, objected to returning to the hotel, and proposed being the messenger to fetch their sister. Juliet joyfully consented, and went to await them in the beautiful verdant recess, between two rocks, overlooking the vast ocean, with which she had already been so much charmed. No sooner, at this favourite spot, was Juliet alone, than, according to her wonted custom, she vented the fullness of her heart in pious acknowledgments. She had scarcely risen, when again, though without Lady Aurora, she saw Lord Melbury, yet not alone. He was arm in arm with Harleigh. "'My dear new sister,' he gaily cried, "'I go now for Aurora. We shall be here presently. But Mr. Harleigh is so kind as to promise that he will stand without, as sentinel, to see that no one approaches nor disturbs you.' He was gone while yet speaking. The immediate impulse of Juliet urged her to remonstrance or flight, but it was the impulse of habit, not of reason. An instant, and a look of Harleigh, represented that the total change of her situation authorized, on all sides, a total change of conduct. Every part of her frame partook of the emotion with which this sudden consciousness beat at her heart, while her silence, her unresisting stay, and the sight of her varying complexion, thrilled to the soul of Harleigh, with an encouragement that he trembled with impatience to exchange for certainty. "'At last, at last, may I?' he cried, "'under the sanction of a brother, presume upon obtaining a hearing with some little remittance of reserve, of mistrust?' Juliet dropped her head. "'Will not Miss Granville be more gracious than Miss Ellis has been?' Miss Granville can have no tie but what is voluntary, no hovering doubts, no chilling scruples, no fancied engagements. A half-sigh of too recent recollection heaved the breast of Juliet. To plead, he continued, against all confidence, to freeze every avenue to sympathy, to repel or wound every rising hope. Miss Granville is wholly independent, mistress of her heart, mistress of herself. "'No, Mr. Harleigh, no!' "'With quickness, though with gentleness, interrupted Juliet. "'Harleigh, momentarily startled, ventured to bend his head below her bonnet, "'and saw, then, that the blush which had visited, flown, and revisited her face, "'had fixed itself in the deepest tint upon her cheek. "'He gazed upon her in ecstatic silence, till looking up, and, for the first time, suffering her eyes willingly to meet his. "'No, Mr. Harleigh, no,' she softly repeated. "'I am not so independent.' 
a smile then beamed over her features, so radiant, so embellishing, that Harleigh wondered he had ever thought her beautiful before, as she added, "'Had I an hundred hearts, ten thousand times you must have conquered them all.' Raptured self now is too cold a word, or too common a one, to give an adequate idea of the bliss of Harleigh. He took her no longer reluctant hand, and she felt upon it a burning tear as he pressed it to his lips. But his joy was unutterable. The change was so great, so sudden, and so exquisite, from all he most dreaded to all he most desired, that language seemed futile for its expression, and to look at her without fearing to alarm or offend her to meet with the softest assurance of partial favour, those eyes hitherto so coldly averted, to hold unresisted the fair hand that, but the moment before, it seemed sacrilege even to wish to touch, so only could he demonstrate the fullness of his transport, the fervour of his gratitude, the perfection of his felicity. In Juliet, though happiness was not less exalted, pleasure wore the chastened garb of moderation, even in the midst of a frankness that laid open her heart. Yet seeing his suit thus authorized by her brother, and certain of the approbation of the bishop, and of her uncle, to so equal and honourable an alliance, she indulged her soft propensities in his favour, by gently conceding avowals, that rewarded not alone his persevering constancy, but her own long and difficult forbearance. "'Many efforts, many conflicts,' she cried, "'in my cruel trials I have certainly found harder, but none, none so distasteful as the unremitting necessity of seeming always impenetrable, where most I was sensitive.' "'By sweetness such as this,' cried Harleigh, "'you would almost persuade me to rejoice at a suspense that has nearly maddened me.' Yet, could you have conceived the agony, the despair of my mind, at your icy, relentless silence, not once to trust me as a friend, not one moment to confide in my integrity, never to consult, to commune, to speak, nor to hear? You smile. Can it be at the pain you have inflicted? Oh, no, no, no. If I smile, tis at the greater pain I have, I trust, averted." while conscious that I might eventually be chained to another, every duty admonished me to resist every feeling. Yet with hope always ultimately before me, I had not the force to utter a word, a baneful word, that might teach you to renounce me, even though I deemed it indispensable to my honour to exact a total separation. Had I confided to you my fearful secret, had you yourself aided the abolition of my shackles, should I not, in a situation so delicate, so critical, have fixed an eternal barrier between us, or have sacrificed the fame of both to the most wounding of calumnies? Ah, no! From the instant that my heart interfered, that I was conscious of a new motive that urged my wish of liberation, I have held it my duty, I have felt it my future happiness, to avoid, to fear, to fly you. I was most favoured then, it seems, replied Harleigh, with a smile of rapture, 
when I thought you most inexorable. I must thank you for your rejections, your avoidance, your implacable, immovable coldness. Reverse else the medal, she cried gaily, and see whether the impression will be more to your taste. Loveliest Miss Ellis, most beloved Miss Granville, my own, at length, at length, my own sweet Juliet, that and that only can be to my taste, which has brought me to the bliss of this moment. With blushing tenderness, Juliet then confessed, that at the moment of his first generous declaration, following the summer-house scene with Elinor, she had felt pierced with an aggravated horror of her nameless ties, that had nearly burst her heart asunder. With minute retrospection, then, enjoying even every evil, and finding motives of congratulation from every pain that was past, they mutually recapitulated their feelings, their conjectures, their rising and progressive partiality, since the opening of their acquaintance. One circumstance alone was tinted with regret. "'Elinor!' cried Juliet. "'Oh, how will Elinor bear to hear of this event?' "'Fear her not,' he returned. "'She has a noble, though perhaps a masculine spirit, and she will soon, probably, think of this affair only with pick and wonder, not against me, for she is truly generous, but against herself, for she is candid and just. She has always internally believed that perseverance in the honour that she is meant to show me must ultimately be victorious. But where partiality is not desired, it can only be repaid, by man to woman as by woman to man, from weakness or vanity. Gratitude is all-powerful in friendship, for friendship may be earned, but love, more willful, more difficult, more capricious, love must be inspired, or must be caught. When Elinor, who possesses many of the finest qualities of the mind, sees the fallacy of her new system, when she finds how vainly she would tread down the barriers of custom and experience, raised by the wisdom of foresight, and established, after trial, for public utility, she will return to the habits of society and common life, as one awakening from a dream in which she has acted some strange and improbable part. A sound quick, but light, of feet, here interrupted the tete-a-tete, followed by the words, "'My sister! my sister!' And, in less than a minute, Lady Aurora was in the arms of Juliet. "'Ah!' she cried, "'you are not then gone, dear, cruel sister, yet you could quit me, and quit me without even a last adieu.' "'Sweetest, most amiable of sisters,' cried the happy Juliet, "'can you wonder I could not take leave of you, when that leave was, I feared, to sunder us for life, when I thought myself destined to exile, slavery, and misery?' Could I dare imagine I was so soon to be restored to you? Could I presume to hope that from anguish so nearly insupportable, I was destined to be elevated, every way, to the summit of all I can conceive of terrestrial happiness? The grateful Harley, at these words, came forward to present himself to Lady Aurora, who learnt with enchantment the purposed alliance not alone from the prospect of permanent happiness which it opened to her sister, 
but also as a means to overcome all possible opposition, on the part of Lord Denmeath, to a public acknowledgment of relationship. Juliet, who, in the indulgence of sentiments so long and so imperiously curbed, found a charm nearly as fascinating as that which their avowal communicated to Harley, began now, with blushing animation, to recount to her delightedly listening Aurora, the various events, the unceasing obligations, which had formed and fixed her attachment. A tale which, like this, had equal attraction to the speaker and to the hearers, had little chance to be brief. It was not, therefore, far advanced, when they were joined by Lord Melbury, who, gathering from Lady Aurora the situation of affairs, bounded, wild as a young colt, with joy. The minutes now were lengthening unconsciously to hours, when the various narratives and congratulations were interrupted by a loud, Halloo! followed by the appearance of the old sailor. "'Please, your honours,' said the worthy tar, "'master begins to be afeard you've as good as forgot him. He's been walking upon the beach alongside the old French parson till one foot is plaguy to put it to wag for the other.' Howsomever, he'd scorn to give up to a Frenchman to the longest day he has to live. More especial sum to a parson. You may take Jack's word for that. The happy party now hastened to the strand, but there perceived neither the bishop nor the admiral. The sailor, slyly grinning at their surprise, told them, with a merry nod, and a significant leer, that he would show them a sight that would make them stare amain which was no other than an honest Englishman, sitting, cheek by jowl, beside a Frenchman, as lovingly as if they were both a couple of Christians, coming off the same shore. He then led them to a bathing-machine, in which the Admiral was civilly, though with great perplexity, labouring to hold discourse with the Bishop. The impatient Harley besought Lord Melbury to be his agent, with the guardian and the uncle of his lovely sister. Lord Melbury joyfully complied. The affair, however momentous, was neither long nor difficult to arrange. The bishop felt an implicit trust in the known judgment and tried discretion of his ward, and the admiral held that a female, as the weaker vessel, could never properly, nor even honourably, make the voyage of life but under the safe convoy of a good husband. Harley, therefore, was speedily summoned into the machine. His proposals were so munificent that they were applauded rather than approved, and, all descending to the beach, the bishop took one hand, and the admiral another, of the blushing Juliet, to present, with tenderest blessings, to the happy, indescribably happy Harley. Juliet, then, had the unspeakable delight of presenting her brother and her sister to her uncle, and to the bishop. The admiral, nevertheless, could not resist taking his niece apart, to tell her that, if he had but had an insight into her being in such a hurry for a husband, he should have made free to speak a good word for a young sea-captain of his acquaintance, a lad for whom he had a great goust, and who would be sure to make his way to the very top since already he had had the luck, while bravely fighting, in two different engagements, to see his two senior officers drop by his side. 
by which means he had arrived at his promotion of first lieutenant, and of captain. And if, which was likely enough, God willing, he should meet with such another good turn in a third future engagement, he bid fair for being a commodore in the prime of his days. And then, my dear, he continued, when he had been upon a long-distance station, or when contrary winds or the enemy had stopped his letters, so that you could not guess whether the poor lad were alive or dead, think what would have been your pride to have read all o' the sudden news of him in the Gazette. This regret, nevertheless, operated not against his affection, nor his beneficence, for returning with her to the company, he solemnly announced her to be his heiress. One thing, however, pertaining to this business, he cried, devilishly works me still whether I will or no. That oldish gentlewoman who is taking upon her to send my niece Granville before the justice. Who is she, pray? I should not be sorry to know her calling, nor moreover what tis puts her upon acting in such a sort. Lord Melbury and Lady Aurora endeavoured to offer some excuse, saying that she was a relation of their uncle Denmeath. "'Oh, if that be the case,' cried he, holding his head high up in the air, "'I shall make no scruple to let her a little into my way of thinking. It's a general rule with me, throughout life, to tell people their faults. Because why? There are plenty of people to tell them their good qualities, in the proviso they have got any, or in the other case to vamp up some, out of their own heads, that serve just as well for groundwork to a few compliments. But as to their faults, not a soul will give them a hint of one of them. They'll leave them to be ticed straight to the devil, sooner than call out Jack Robinson to save them." Lady Aurora was now advancing with a gentle supplication, but taking off his hat, and making her a low bow, he declined hearing her, saying, though it may rather pass for a hint than a compliment, to come out with the plain truth to a young lady, I must make free to observe that I never let my complaisance get the upper hand of my sincerity. Because why? My sincerity is for myself. Tis my honour, and whereby I keep my own good opinion. But my complaisance is for my neighbours, serving only to coax over the good opinion of others. For which reason, though I am as glad as another man of a good word, I don't much fancy turning out of my way for it. I hold it, therefore, my bounden duty, to demand a parley with that oldish gentlewoman, and the more so, abundantly, for her being a person of quality, for if she's better born, and better bred than her neighbours, she should be better mannered. For who the devil's the better for her birth and breeding, if they only serve to make her fancy she has a right to be impudent? If we don't take care to drop a word or two of advice, now and then, to persons of that sort, you'll see before long they won't let a man sit down in their company under a lord. Then, inquiring her name, he sent his honest sailor to request an audience of her for the uncle of the Honourable Miss Granville, adding, with a significant smile, Harkee, my boy, if she says she don't know such a person, tell her one Admiral Powell will have the honour to introduce him to her, and if she says she does not know Admiral Powell neither, tell her to cast an eye upon the Gazette of the month of September this very day twelve years. To tranquillise Lady Aurora, Lord Melbury preceded the sailor to prepare Mrs. Howell for the interview, but he did not return till a summons to the repast was assembling the whole company in the lodging-house. 
he then related that he had found his uncle Denmeath already arrived, and that he had acquainted both him and Mrs. Howell with the situation of affairs. The Admiral now ordered the dinner to be kept warm, while he wetted, he said, his goust for it, and then sped to the combat, bent upon fighting as valiantly for the parental fortune of his niece with one antagonist, as for what was due to her wounded dignity with the other. The party, however, was not long separated. Lord Denmeath, confounded by intelligence so easily authenticated, of the duplicate codicil, protested that he had never designed that the portion should be withheld. And Mrs. Howell, stung with rage and shame at this positive discovery of the family, the fortune, and the protection to which the young woman, whom she had used so ignominiously, was entitled, received the reprimands and admonitions of the admiral in mortified silence. Nothing, when once tis understood, is so quickly settled as business. Lord Denmeath, having given the name of his lawyer, broke up the conference and quitted Tenmouth. Mrs. Howell, confused, offended, and gloomy, was not less eager to be gone, though the admiral would gladly have detained her, to listen to a few more items of his opinions. Lady Aurora, forced to accompany her uncle, softly whispered Juliet, in an affectionate parting embrace, "'My dear sister, ere long will give a new and sweet home to her Aurora.' This indeed was a powerful plea to favour the impatience of Harleigh, a plea far more weighty than one urged by the Admiral, that she would be married without further parleying lest people should be pleased to take it into their heads, that she had been the real wife of that scoundrel commissary, and was forced, therefore, to go through the ceremony of being his widow. Called now, to the kind and splendid repast, the Admiral insisted that Juliet should preside at his hospitable board, where, seated between her reverend bishop and beloved brother, and facing her generous uncle, and the man of her heart, she did the honours of the table to the enchanted strangers, with glowing happiness, though blended with modest confusion. When the dessert was served, the joyous admiral, filling up a bumper of ale, and rising, said, "'Ladies and gentlemen, I shall now make free to propose two toasts to you. The first, as in duty bound, is to the king and the royal navy. I always put them together. Because why? I hold our king to be our pilot.' without whom we might soon be all aground. And, in like manner, I hold us tars to be the best part of His Majesty's ship's company, for though old England, to my seeming, is at the top of the world, if we tars were to play it false, it would soon pop to the bottom. So here goes to the King and the Royal Navy. This ceremony passed. And now, ladies and gentlemen, he resumed, as I mortally hate a secret, having taken frequent note that what ought not to be said is commonly something that ought not to be done, I shall make bold to propose a second bumper to the happy espousals of the Honourable Miss Granville, who you are to know is my niece, with the very honest gentleman who is at my elbow, and who had the kindness to take a liking to her before he knew that she had a lord on one side, and moreover an admiral on the other for her relations. Nor yet that she would have been a lady in her own right, if her father had not taken the long journey before her grandfather. This toast being gaily drunk by every one, save the blushing Juliet, 
the admiral sent out his grinning sailor, with a bottle of port, to repeat it with the postilions. "'Monsieur the bishop,' continued the admiral, "'there is one remark which I must beg leave to make, that I hope you won't think unchristian, though I confess it to not be over and above charitable. But I have always, in my heart, owed a grudge to my lord Granville, though his lordship was my brother-in-law, for bringing up his daughter in foreign parts, whereby he risked the ruin of her morals both in body and soul. Not that I would condemn a dead man who cannot speak up in his own defence, for I hold nothing to be narrower than that. Therefore, Mr. Bishop, if you have anything to offer in his behalf, it will look very well in you, as a parson, to make the most of it, and moreover give great satisfaction both to my niece, the Honourable Miss Granville, and to this young lord, who is her half-brother. And I also, I hope, as a good Christian, shall sincerely take my share thereof. An irresistible, or rather an unresisted, disposition to procrastinate whatever was painful, answered the bishop in French, was the origin and cause of all that you blame. Lord Granville always persuaded himself that the morrow would offer opportunity, or inspire courage, for a confession of his marriage that the day never presented, nor excited. And to avow his daughter while that was concealed, would have been a disgrace indelible to his deserving departed lady. This from year to year kept Miss Granville abroad, with the most exalted sentiments, the nicest honour, and the quickest feelings. My noble, however irresolute friend, had an unfortunate indecision of character, that made him waste in weighing what should be done, the time and occasion of action. Could he have foreseen the innumerable hardships, the endless distresses, from which neither prudence nor innocence could guard the helpless offspring of an unacknowledged union, he would either, at once and nobly, have conquered his early passion, or courageously have sustained and avowed its object. It must also be considered, said Harley, while tears of filial tenderness rolled down the cheeks of Juliet, and started into the eyes of Lord Melbury that when my lord Granville trusted his daughter to a foreign country, his own premature death was not less foreseen than the political event in which her property and safety, in common with those of the natives, were involved. That event has not operated more wonderfully upon the fate and fortune than upon the minds and characters of those individuals who have borne in it any share and who, according to their temperaments and dispositions, have received its new doctrines as lessons, or as warnings. Its undistinguishing admirers, it has emancipated from all rule and order, while its unwilling, yet observant and suffering witnesses, have been formed by it to fortitude, prudence, and philosophy. It has taught them to strengthen the mind with the body. It has animated the exercise of reason, the exertion of the faculties, activity in labour, resignation in endurance, and cheerfulness under every privation. It has formed, my Lord Melbury, in the school of refining adversity, your firm yet tender sister. It has formed, noble admiral, in the trials, perils, and hardships of a struggling existence, your courageous, though so gentle niece. And for me, May I not hope that it has formed—' He stopped, 
the penetrated Juliet cast upon him a look that supplicated silence. He obeyed its expression, and her mantling cheek, dimpling with grateful smiles, amply recompensed his forbearance. "'Gentlemen both,' said the Admiral, "'I return you my hearty thanks for letting me into this inside of the case, and if I were to give you, in return, a little smattering of what passed in my own mind in those days, I can't deny but I should have been tempted, often enough, to out with the whole business, if I had not been afraid of being jeered for my pains, a thing for which I never had much taste. Many and many a time I used to muse upon it, and say to myself, My sister was married, honourably married, and I, for I was but a young man then to what I am now, a mere boy, and I, says I to myself, am brother-in-law to a lord. Yet I was too proud to publish it of my own accord, because of his being a lord. For, if I had, the whole ship's company in those days might have thought me little better than a puppy. The repast finished, the pleased and grateful guests separated. Harley set off post for London and his lawyer, and the bishop and Lord Melbury, gladly accepted an invitation from the Admiral to his country seat near Richmond, of which, with the greatest delight, he proclaimed his niece mistress. But short here was her reign. Harley was speedily ready, and his cause, seconded by Lady Aurora and the Admiral, could not be pleaded in vain to Juliet, who, in giving her hand where she had given her whole heart, in partaking the name, the mansion, the fortune, and the fate of Harley, bestowed and enjoyed such rare felicity, that all she had endured seemed light, all she had performed appeared easy, and even every woe became dear to her remembrance, that gradually and progressively, though painfully and unsuspectedly, had contributed to so exquisite and heartfelt a union. Her own happiness thus fixed, her first solicitude was for her guardian and preserver the bishop, whom, with her sympathizing Harley, she attended to the continent. There she was embraced and blessed by her honoured benefactress, the Marchioness. There, and not vainly, she strove to console her beloved Gabriella, and there, in the elegant society to which she had owed all her early enjoyments, she prevailed upon Harley to remain till it became necessary to return to their home, to present, upon his birth, a new heir to the enchanted admiral. A rising family, then, put an end to foreign excursions, but the dearest delight of Harley was seeking to assemble around his Juliet her first friends. Lady Aurora had hardly any other home than that of her almost adored sister, till she was installed in one, with an equal and amiable partner upon the same day that Lord Melbury obtained the willing hand of the lively, natural, and feeling Lady Barbara Frankland. Sir Jasper Harrington, to whom Juliet had such essential obligations, became, now that all false hopes or fanciful wishes were annihilated, her favourite guest. He still saw her with a tenderness which he secretly, though no longer banefully nourished, but transferred to her rapturously attentive children, the histories of his nocturnal intercourse with sylphs, fairies, and the destinies, while, ever awake to the wishes of Juliet, he rescued the simple Flora from impending destruction, 
by portioning her in marriage with an honest, vigilant farmer. Scarcely less welcome than the whimsical baronet to Juliet, nor less happy under her roof, was the guileless and benevolent Mr. Giles Arb, who there enjoyed, unbroken by his restless, adroit, and worldly cousin, his innocent serenity. Juliet sought, too, with her first power, the intuitively virtuous Dame Fairfield, whose incorrigible husband had briefly, with the man of the hut, paid the dread earthly penalty of increased and detected crimes. Harleigh placed a considerable annuity upon the faithful, excellent Ambrose, to whose care, soon afterwards, he committed the meritorious widow, and her lovely little ones, by a marriage which ensured to them the protection and endearments of a kind husband and an affectionate father. Even Mr. Tedman, when Harleigh paid him, with high interest, his three half-guineas, was invited to Harleigh Hall, where, with no small pride, he received thanks for the first liberality he had ever prevailed with himself to practice. No one to whom Juliet had ever owed any good office was by her forgotten, or by Harleigh neglected. They visited, with gifts and praise, every cottage in which the wanderer had been harboured, and Harleigh bought of the young woodcutters, at a high price, their dog Dash, who became his new master's inseparable companion in his garden, fields, and rides. But Riley, whose spirit of tormenting, springing from bilious ill-humour, operated in producing pain and mischief like the most confirmed malevolence, Ireton, whose unmeaning pursuits, futile changes, and careless insolence, were everywhere productive of disorder, save in his own unfeeling breast, and Selina, who, in presence of a higher or richer acquaintance, ventured not to bestow even a smile upon the person whom, in her closet, she treated, trusted, and caressed as her bosom friend. These were excluded from the happy hall, as persons of minds uncongenial to confidence that basis of peace and cordiality in social intercourse. But while for these simple non-admission was deemed a sufficient mark of disapprobation, the admiral himself, when apprised of the adventures of his niece, insisted upon being the messenger of positive exile to three ladies, whom he nominated the three furies, Mrs. Howell, Mrs. Ireton, and Mrs. Maple, that he might give them, he said, a hint, as it behooved a good Christian to do, for their future amendment, of the reasons of their exclusion. All mankind, he affirmed, would behave better, if the good were not as cowardly, as the bad are audacious. To spare at least the pride, though he could not the softer feelings of Eleanor, Harleigh thought it right to communicate to her himself, by letter, the news of his marriage. She received it with a consternation that cruelly opened her eyes to the false hopes which, however disclaimed and disowned, had still duped her wishes, and played upon her fancy, with visions that had brought Harleigh ultimately to her feet. Despair, with its grimmest horror, grasped her heart at this self-detection, but pride supported her spirit, and time, the healer of woe, though the destroyer of life, moderated her passions, in annihilating her expectations. 
and when her better qualities found opportunity for exertion, her eccentricities, though always what were most conspicuous in her character, ceased to absorb her whole being. Yet in the anguish of her disappointment, "'Alas! alas!' she cried. "'Must Eleanor too, must even Eleanor, like the element to which, with the common herd, she owes chiefly her support, find, with that herd, her own level? Find that she has strayed from the beaten road, only to discover that all others are pathless?' Here, and thus felicitously, ended, with the acknowledgment of her name, and her family, the difficulties of the wanderer, a being who had been cast upon herself, a female Robinson Crusoe, as unaided and unprotected, though in the midst of the world, as that imaginary hero in his uninhabited island, and reduced either to sink, through inanition, to nonentity, or to be rescued from famine and death by such resources as she could find, independently, in herself. How mightily, thus circumstanced, are the difficulties with which a female has to struggle! Her honour always in danger of being assailed, her delicacy of being offended, her strength of being exhausted, and her virtue of being calumniated. Yet even difficulties such as these are not insurmountable, where mental courage, operating through patience, prudence, and principle, supply physical force, combat disappointment, and keep the untamed spirits superior to failure, and ever alive to hope. End of chapter 92 End of the Wanderer, or Female Difficulties, by Fanny Burney Recording by Roxana Nazari.